arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. To the ancient Romans, the planet Mars was symbolic of blood and war. But to many people today, the red planet may hold the key for a bright new future for humanity. The story of Mars began about 4.5 billion years ago when gas and dust swirled together to form the fourth planet from the Sun. Mars is the second smallest planet in the solar system with a diameter just shy of the width of Africa. In fact, its entire surface area is similar to that of all of Earth's continents combined. Much like its terrestrial cousin, Mars is dense and has a rocky composition. At the center of the planet is a core made of iron, nickel, and sulfur, which may have created a protective magnetic field during Mars's earlier years. Enveloping the core is a rocky mantle made of silicate minerals and a crust rich in iron. These iron minerals react with the trace amounts of oxygen in Mars's atmosphere and rusts giving the planet its signature reddish hue. While its blood-like appearance inspired the ancient Romans to name Mars after their god of war, the planet's rusty color could be considered symbolic of the planet's prime days long past. Today, Mars is dry, desolate, and cold, with temperatures dropping as low as negative 225 degrees Fahrenheit. But billions of years ago, the planet was much warmer, more geologically active, and had a watery surface. Lake beds and river valleys snake along the face of Mars, indicating that liquid water was, for a time, present. Volcanoes, such as Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system at three times the height of Mount Everest, once erupted lava. But by about 50 million years ago, soon after Earth's dinosaurs died out, Mars's volcanoes also went extinct. Water on the red planet still exists today, but mostly in the form of polar ice caps. Because of factors such as the presence of water, some scientists believe life may have existed on the red planet and may exist again. Since the 1960s, Space programs from around the world have launched missions to Mars in attempts to understand the planet's past, present, and potential for sustaining life. Life on another planet may well be out of reach for the near future. But if any planet can give us hope, Mars may hold the key to the survival of humanity. We are about to start the Harry Cobb series. Two of the books I'm going to be reading will be The Ice of Triton, and the one we'll start out with is The Dust of Mars. What I like about this series is that it's in the future, it's high-tech, it's also right down to the nitty-gritty of the investigation. 
Here's how the book starts out. Dust is wreaking havoc across the Martian surface. Welcome to Mars! With city-sized domes for living and extended linear tubes for crossing the desert. Harry Cobb is a retired bureau agent and now operates privately as an intra-solar system investigator. Cobb is on his way to Mars from his office on Arbutus and his client, Jason Rapp, sends a distress call from the surface of Mars. Rapp has vital information for Cobb. Inspector John Patno is brought into what will become a murder. Rapp has a long history with the Devon Syndicate. And the most powerful family on Mars, the Turcott family, has industrial plants near where Rapp was murdered. Let's get this case underway. Harry Cobb, The Dust of Mars by Robert P. Fitton starts now. The Dust of Mars, Chapter 1. Despite his lack of character, Jason Rapp did not deserve a death sentence. I had enjoyed a pleasant shuttle flight from Orbitus to Mars until Rapp's call rattled my zip connection. The wind howled and sand grains patted against his rover's bubble top, suggesting a severe dust storm. He said that someone in a silver terrain suit, brandishing a pinpoint pulsar, had hiked through the Martian ridge shadows. Rapp sensed a murderous intent. At first, I wanted to chide him for not meeting me for breakfast on Orbitus. Just ten hours ago, he slipped me important information coinciding with my trip to Mars about a cover-up in the Turcotte ore refining operation on the planet. The security chief for the Turcotte operation told me the same thing. Now my attention was directed toward Rapp's pleas for help. As the pinpoint was aimed at the bubble, he frantically described the tinted face shield of his potential killer. Twenty-five years at the Space Investigative Bureau had alerted me to the shrill crescendo of a pinpoint pulsar's thin red beam. I heard the bubble rip as Rapp cried out for mercy. The outward gush of air into the cold, diminished Martian atmosphere was soon replaced by his mournful whimper. He pushed out my name in his last remaining gasps. Cobb. Cobb. Rap, can you hear me? I sat up fully in the recliner and gripped my perforated zip. The signal went out. Rap! Rap! The pulverizing sand and wind gusts grew louder now. I leaned toward the shuttle's oval portal. Behind the backdrop of stars, Mars cast a rusty glow beyond the shuttle's gray wing. Rapp was dead, thousands of kilometers away on the planet's surface. I flipped up the recliner tray as images of Rapp in his dark tuxedo at Orbis's blackjack tables shot through my brain like bursts from the pinpoint. My shoes connected to the floor forces and I started down the aisle. The forward hatch was sealed. One of the attendants, an affable young woman with bouncy blonde hair, stared from the adjacent alcove and flashed her white teeth before she spoke. Mr. Cobb, if you're looking for the bathroom, it's to the rear of this section. I need to speak with a navigator, I said brusquely. The navigator? She asked as if the question had transcended her usual answers about food, drink, or rester pillows. I don't understand. Miss, I'm a private investigator, a former SIB agent. One of my clients is in trouble on the planet. I need the navigator's assistance. Yes, yes, of course. I removed my license, retired bureau discs, and placed them in her smooth palm. Here, let the pilot check these. She squinted, seemed confused, and complied with my request. 
Her long red fingernails tapped out a code on the side panel. The hatch slid open and remained open as she walked down the narrow corridor. Silhouetted cabin figures were positioned in front of glowing console panel lights in the encroaching brown Martian sphere. I glanced briefly at the hint of the upper ice caps as I exhaled. The attendant leaned over a man seated at a darkened alcove containing numerous window monitors. She held out her hand and pointed toward me as she spoke. The man glanced at me and took both discs from her hand. I could see him lean over one of the window screens. Then he nodded and waved me up front. I checked my zip window, set to standard time at the Livingston Dome. It was 1.44 p.m. I squeezed my large frame through the hatch and moved sideways down the connector corridor. The young man stood in his bright blue neckliner and dark pants. He extended his hand quickly, and I wondered if he approved of my long bureau record. Mr. Cobb, what can I do for you? I studied his black name badge embroidered into his neckliner at the shoulder. Moss, I need an enhanced scan of the planet's surface. I just received a distress call from a potential informant, and I think he's been murdered. I handed him my zip. Last call coordinates are locked in my zip memory. Moss nodded once and positioned my zip on his station counter. He immediately hooked in a relay, punched a few buttons on the panel, and a Mercator map of Mars appeared on his window monitor. A green dot flashed in the northern hemisphere, center of the Elysium Planitia. I recognized the area because it was my destination. Well, he's 18 kilometers out from the Livingston Dome. On Turcot land, it looks like there's an industrial plant five kilometers back and another one 12 kilometers ahead. Actual heading is 35.2 north and 108 west longitude. Well, I was afraid of that. What do you mean? asked Moss. Ongoing investigation, son. Can you bring me an image from that signal center? Well, that will not be a problem, sir. Excellent. As he worked the panels under the huge window monitor, I unclipped my zip and placed a call to John Patno in Livingston's security office. Moss now had a full picture of Mars, and he adjusted the clarity as my zip buzzed. After a brief rustling on the other end, Patno's raspy voice came over my zip speaker. John Patno. John, this is Harry. Harry, my boy. Calling to put in your dinner menu at the Excelsior? They know what I like, John. We have a problem on the other side of IP5, 12 kilometers toward IP7. Patno cleared his throat and his voice assumed its professional, authoritative tone. Well, what happened? Guy named Jason Rapp. He has info on problems at IP5. Somebody just shot a pinpoint at him, right through his rover bubble. Oh, poppycock. I'm not kidding, John. You need to get somebody over there. The navigator has the area on the screen. It's a bad dust storm. Moss reduced the screen to a 600 square kilometer resolution. The Livingston Dome and the smaller surrounding support domes were clear. But across the brown rock-strewn crater-punched desert, a wispy gray dust cloud measuring several hundred kilometers back swirled toward IP-5 and the support domes. Tracking a potential killer was now impossible. I heard Patno calling the troopers on another zip. Then he came back on my zip connection. Harry, I can visibly see that storm. Rover sight is in the thick of it. Listen, I'll request that Kranz and some troopers head into that storm. Kranz? I grit my teeth. Kranz was an obnoxious, power-hungry puppet of Norman Burkhardt. 
as Livingston's security chief, Burkhart, was bought and paid for by the Turcotts. Well, does it have to be Kranz? Well, he's the only one crazy enough to fly into a dust storm, besides you and me. I thought back to the numerous times Kranz had interfered with my investigations, both with the Bureau and after I retired. You better call Ed Stanton, too. He's the Turcot security chief. Let him know what's going on. I'll call him. Look, you and I will trace the IP-7 Livingston Road. What, from above that storm? I asked as Moss scanned the storm edges. Readings show the dust had advanced another kilometer toward Livingston. This is a bad storm, said Moss. Patnall cleared his throat. Harry, I'll meet you at the port. What is your ETA? 425, said Moss. I heard him. I'm going to try and get a security satellite image. Maybe we can get scans through that storm. Brief me. I'm not going anywhere. I shut off the zip and turned to Moss. Thanks for your help, Captain. Anytime, sir. We'll let you know if the storm clears. After thanking both Moss and the attendant, I retreated down the corridor. I glanced at the packed shuttle, sat in the recliner, and folded my arms across my chest. Last night was a night of hope and promise. When I had wandered from my hotel room into the Arbutus casinos, I saw Ariana Cervantes' fluffy dark hair and deep eyes. She sipped the contents of a thin glass at the restaurant overlooking the gambling floor. My stomach tingled, and I stalled above the gambling hall. No friend or foe could thrill me so quickly and so fully. I leaned on the brass railing. Amidst a plethora of conversation, crashing slot machine levers, blackjack collars, and music. She tilted her head back slightly and, with a gracious smile, seemed amused by her young dinner companion. Even from across the floor, her skin was luminous, and gold rings gaping with colorful gems adorned her fingers. Ten years had passed since we spent four days alone in the Barsoom Dome across the Vallis Marineris canyons. My professional instinct, responsible for rational decisions during my career with the Bureau, held me back, but a romantic flair filled with desire and intense longing pushed me forward. I descended the stairs onto the smooth gambling room carpet and stepped between the slot machines. The men and women strenuously shifted their slot machine levers, but I focused on Ariana's wide cheekbones and stunning brown eyes. I cautioned myself against approaching this woman. Near the blackjack table, a tall, handsome man, maybe ten years younger than me, handed over a wad of blue droids to the caller. Frustration revealed itself in the hardening crevice developing down his sloping forehead. His huge fists were closed, and he shook his head as he turned. Damn, he said loud enough for me to hear him. His blue eyes brightened, and he pointed, calling out my name through the crowd noise, but I did not know him. I pretended not to hear him and eyed Ariana, now enjoying a colorful sherbet at the upper table. He finally reached me and grabbed my arm as I passed the table. I looked down at his hand and he breathed rapidly. You're Harry Cobb. And who the hell are you? I asked, my heart still beating in anticipation of seeing Ariana again. His teeth were straight and white. A man who can help you. I don't like riddles, mister, I told him. Who are you? Jason Rapp. He shook my hand tightly as if he were holding on for comfort. Stanton called you to check the Turcot iron smelting plant. Yeah, so what? I know the truth about what really happened in that plant over the last year. 
I raised my brows, viewing Ariana out of the corner of my eye. And what, pray tell, is that? Confidence left his face, and his teeth chafed at his lips. I can't do that right now. You're wasting my time. I started across the floor again. Wait, there are financial considerations here. You just lost a wad full of droids, I said, and I faced him squarely. Listen, Stanton is concerned product was not properly manufactured. And he can't prove anything because it happened months ago. What do you mean? Rap rubbed his mouth. Look, Cobb, meet me in the breakfast room here at the hotel. What time do you want? Livingston standard. I gave him my zip address. His shifting eyes indicated a man under a great deal of pressure. He told me to meet him at 7 a.m. and then bolted back to the gaming tables. I alternated glances between Ariana and Rap and continued across the room. Less than 50 feet above me, Ariana sat in a sleeveless blue velvet dress, and her layered dark hair was nestled on her bare shoulders. Again, I wanted to flee to the hotel shops, but instead trudged up the marble staircase's oriental runner. I slowly rose above the leafy plants atop the retaining wall. Within the aromatic cuisine, the small restaurant's patrons were isolated within a cone of soft classical music, clean air, and red sensual light. I reached the upper level. Ariana slowly lowered her glass when she saw me. The young man held her wrist as she turned. She set her glass on the linen table and stood. Her friend watched her saunter around the restaurant tables. She was not a tall woman, but had a slim waist and a well-defined figure, accentuated by the form-fitting dress down to the knee. Her lips parted and her brown eyes filled as she extended her hands. Then she hugged me. God, I never thought I'd see you again, Harry. Her sensual perfume and warm touch brought me back to the chateau inside the Bassoon Dome. I remembered nestling against her smooth white skin as the warm breezes wafted through the chateau. Why did you leave, Ariana? Some things are better left in the past. Her eyes brightened and she smiled. But you're here now. I saw you from across the floor. She looped her arm under my arm, and you fought the urge all the way across the floor. Maybe. I was fixed on her dark, alluring eyes. You just look wonderful. She walked me to the brass railing above the gaming tables. I often think of that time we had at Barsoom. I don't think I've ever felt so far away, leaving my whole life somewhere else. She kept her arm locked. Her touch was warm and charged my body with just an inkling of the thrill I had experienced ten years ago. Let me guess, as usual, you're here on business. I am. Well, sorry to hear about the death of your father. He founded a great empire and amalgamated surities. Moisture glazed her eyes and her arm tightened. Father died before his time. None of us expected it. I was always amazed at how he inspired people. I heard the pep talks when he was the main speaker that night we met. People, when properly following instructions, are the heart and soul of any operation. She turned like a window scanner, slowly panning, and released her arm, but held my hands. I want to go out, find a quiet place away from the fray, and talk about old times, Harry. What about your dinner date? You're my dinner date. What do you say? I kicked myself for having doubts when I earlier crossed the gambling floor. 
her presence before me seem like a dream. Sure. Chapter 2 I opened my eyes when my zip sounded. The fuzzy window image revealed I had slept on the shuttle for nearly two hours. I sat up in the recliner, tightened my brow, and lifted the zip to my ear. Cobb, I said in a low voice. Is that you, Harry? Desmond? I had expected somebody had already apprised the eldest Turcotte about the trouble between his two industrial plants. Harry, I have to tell you, I'm not the most happy man at this moment. I was fully awake now. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. While I support Ed Stanton for asking for help, I am outraged that you choose not to notify me when you were involved in an investigation of IP5. My IP5. Oh? Oh, no mind. Ed only told me that someone is responsible for what he called a mess-up in production. Well, Ed should mind his own business, stated Desmond. He's the head of your security. I offered you that position, said Desmond. I want to know exactly what you found out in your investigation. Well, absolutely nothing. Ed called me and I moved up my trip from next week to this week. I'm a consultant with my own clients. I don't want to hear your list of accolades, Harry, old boy. I was just a little upset when Desmond referred to me as old. You tell me right now what you know. The dead man, Rap, he had information for me. He's dead on my property. Security forces are all over the place. Well, who's the plant engineer at IP5? Joe Lockheed, and don't be sticking your nose into places you shouldn't. What are you worried about? I asked and awaited more cackle. Burkhart does your bidding. There's a storm going on out there. When it clears, I'll have my men bring me out. Then you don't think Rapp's death has anything to do with what he knew about IP-5? I asked. What did he tell you? If you're holding back, Harry... I know as much as you do, but I plan to find out a whole lot more. After a pause, the frequency disconnected. I created a memo to Sadie on my zip. I wanted Rennie, Max, and Jody made aware of Rapp's murder, and I needed a background check on him. I stood and stretched in the aisle. Fatigue now followed me like a weight strapped to my back. When I was younger, I could easily survive on an hour's sleep. I trudged to the forward cabin and spotted the attendant checking packages in the stow compartments. Mr. Cobb, I was going to wake you. Captain Moss has additional images from the surface. Bless you. I guess I needed my beauty sleep. Well, I think anyone approaching 40 needs more sleep. I smiled and squeezed her wrists. Bless you. Approaching 40. That's a good one. Thank you. She smiled and raised her brows and opened the hatch. I was in the corridor before the door slid back all the way. I didn't see Moss at his console, but soon he appeared up front. He briefly introduced me to the pilot and the rest of the crew. Then he sat me down in front of his window screen. The pictures from the surface, although recorded, were more detailed than just a few hours ago. Utilizing reconnaissance satellites, Moss had captured a blurred depiction of a Korean rover near a crater ravine. Scans indicate the bubble was pierced. Well, that would coincide with what Rapp told me. Later frames showed the arrival of traces in the sky, and crews had constructed a small white containment dome around the rover. By the way, said Moss, Inspector Patno from the Livingston Dome has contacted us three times. I told him you were sleeping. Bad habit, sleeping, I said. Is he still at Livingston? 
I believe he is at the port, said Moss as a frequency address appeared in the lower corner of the screen. You can use this station if you wish. Thanks. Moss accessed the address and handed me the station zip. I stared at the rover and the rounded dome base on the zip window as the frequency connected. John Patno. John, it's Harry. Ah, the old man awakes from his afternoon nap. What is it with all these old remarks? Anyone else would have upset me with the quip. You're as old as I am, Gramps. Touché. Well, 52 years old doesn't qualify either one of us for the dustbin. I thought back to last night when I walked Ariana into a quiet cafe away from the gambling floor. What do you have on the wrap thing, John? Kranz confirms what you said about the pinpoint pulsar. Directly through the rover bubble. Rap was not wearing a terrain suit or any protection. Wouldn't have done him a damn bit of good anyway. He bled to death inside that rover. Everything was frozen. What about the area around the rover? I asked and continued to study the screen image from a half an hour ago. With that wind, are you kidding? Everything is wiped clean. We've got the satellite images and we've relayed them to Moss up there. There was a gap of 53 minutes to get through the channels. More than enough time for anyone to leave the murder scene. Well, that's not good. The killer had 53 minutes to escape. Over an hour until we had scans of the connector roads. I had all the roads to Livingston blocked, but with that storm, anyone with a decent rover could have looped around and then continued. I have a report pending on all rented rovers and rovers leaving the Livingston exit gates over the past 24 hours. Unless the killer didn't come from Livingston. I nodded and sat down again. John, Desmond called me on the zip. He's not too happy. Oh, tell me about it. He's demanding my office inform him about what we know about the IP5 problem. I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Apparently this IP5 thing is bigger than Ed or any of us thought. Listen, John, my zip has a playback of the attack. I'm concerned about the pinpoint pulse frequency. I'll memo the playback to you, and the Bureau can trace the manufacturer. That was my next request, sir. Now get your rump down here, and we'll take a little trip into the desert. Will do. Cob out. I looked up from the rover scan, and then into Moss's blue eyes. Captain, again, thank you for your help here. Anytime, Commander, said Moss with a quirky grin. I see you've checked my Bureau record. Yes, sir, standard practice. No need to explain, Captain, I said as I stood and patted him on the back. I'll be back in my recliner if anything else comes in. Understood, he said as I turned. Sir, I'm retired, I said halfway down the corridor. I admired Moss's thoroughness and his ability to follow regulations. I grinned at the attendant and returned to my recliner. I plugged in the zip into the recliner window and immediately accessed the plea from Rapp captured only two hours ago. After memoing Patino, I pushed the playback. Rapp made no mention of any suspicions about his assailant, nor did he provide a description other than someone in a T-suit wielding a pinpoint. His wails and the ensuing high-pitched pinpoint prompted me to close the zip. thought about checking his background myself, but shut down the zip window. Sadie was a proficient coordinator and could provide me with a complete check. I was not bothered by the stress of the case or the Turcotte pressure, but I was plagued with thoughts of Ariana and the time we spent last night on Orbitus. Her business trip would end at the Whittemore Dome on Mars. As we talked last night at the corner table of the Orbitus Cafe, my tension had eased and I wondered why I'd ever let her go. 
I sensed she had similar feelings when she suggested we meet at the Excelsior Hotel's restaurant in Livingston tomorrow night. Chapter 3 I drifted between the edges of sleep and a full realization that the man supposed to provide vital information to me at this morning's breakfast lay dead, covered with icy blood in the desert. Mars's brown crater-dotted soil, lifeless from a thousand kilometers up, was bright against dark space. I sat up as the orbiter shuttle slowed amidst an assortment of beeps and a recliner sweep by the attendants. After traveling to the murder site with Patineau, my next move, if I stuck my nose into this mess, might involve a rover trip bus to Industrial Plant 5 and interviews with all the plant personnel. I was, however, acutely aware of Desmond's fierce opposition to the evolving investigation. He would proceed only if he had control of the situation at the plant. As the craft banked and rotated 180 degrees for entry into the thin Martian atmosphere, many views were visible on the recliner window, but I had other things on my mind. Foremost was how Jason Rapp had any information at all about the goings-on inside of a plant thousands of kilometers away from his inner solar system stomping grounds. The shuttle fully faced the crisp yellow sun, reduced slightly in size from Orbitus, but noticeably smaller than the view from Earth. The tinted radiation shields darkened now, and I shut my eyes. Rap skipped breakfast, maybe an oversight, and headed directly to Mars within kilometers of IP-5. In fact, he had to pass or stop at IP-5, unless he took the long way around from Livingston via IP-7 and retreated along its connector road. The craft shuddered at the atmospheric edges and my eyes remained closed. I didn't know Rap personally, but his appearance at the blackjack tables and his sensitivity to losing a wad of droids lent itself to another speculation. His avoidance of breakfast might reveal another plan, a plan to procure money. Obviously, he was aware the Turcots were engaged in something nefarious at IP-5, or at least he was cognizant something was rotten in production. How Rapp came to know that information was irrelevant right now, but blackmail could point to his killer. I pulled out my zip and pushed Patino to dress. The transmission was scratchy through the atmosphere, and he sounded as if he had a mouthful of his favorite dessert. Are you eating the real cheesecake or the doctor-recommended version? The real thing. The hell with the doctors. Couldn't you wait another half an hour, Harry? Can't get this thing off my mind, John. I need to talk to the people at IP-5. Well, funny you should mention IP-5, said Patino, taking in more cheesecake. The plant manager, Joe Lockheed. What about him? He's not around. He's not at the plant. Not at his habitat, connected to the IP-5 dome. And get this, logs indicate that Lockheed checked out a company rover at 12.47 p.m. Rapp was killed an hour later, eight kilometers from the plant. Why would Lockheed leave the plant during a dust storm? Good question, Harry, said Patno. Strawberry cheesecake, very good, very good. Almost as good as cherry. You better watch your diet, I told him. We need witnesses at the plant. Somebody who might have seen Rapp and Lockheed together. Frequency wavered as the shuttle to something stinks and I don't like it. That note signal went out. The brighter edges of the atmosphere separated a well-defined line at the outer space darkness. I clipped the zip on my belt and leaned back. Rapp may have been blackmailing Lockheed. 
What other explanation would fly against this quick departure from Orbitus? I wanted to know more about Rap, but as we surged into the upper atmosphere, my anger toward Desmond Turcott mounted like a pressure on an overinflated dome on the planet's surface. I saw the enveloping dust cloud from several thousand meters over the planet's surface. Sporadic bursts of reflected sunlight bounced off the charcoal-tinted Livingston Dome far below, but my eyes were drawn across the darkening rocky desert, blanketed by a sweeping gray storm. The digital overhead clock showed the shuttle was exactly on time as we swung over Livingston and prepared to bank for the port atop the dome. I leaned against the portal's cold, transparent silcoplast. I rubbed my nose several times as I anguished about the source for Rapp's information. He needed someone to provide the IP5 improprieties in order to pressure Lockheed. I knew I was forming an unavoidable list of facts into a theory dependent on my own prejudices and misconceptions. Underlying everything was the image of Rapp handing over the blue droit ward on Arbutus. My shoulder pushed against the outer wall as we circled toward Livingston. The long gray runways crisscrossed the open area along the top of the dome. As we neared the upper area, the rest of the rounded enclosure below vanished, and I had the sense, as I always did, of landing on a flat planetary surface. I studied the pointed blue control towers, and the hotels inside the clear silcoplast bubbles dotted like blisters on the top. The landing gear popped, and we raced above the grainy runway, finally making contact three seconds from 4.30. Huge airlifters slowed the craft outside the port. I was compelled to look back across the desert. The dark cloud lurked even more ominous from up here, but a surface tracer, captained by an experienced pilot, even an ionized dust storm. I moved my leg rapidly up and down as we taxied back toward the port's transition sounds. Max and Jody were working on a minor customs case along the transport barriers outside lunar orbit. I smiled when I realized how the bionic Jody's rational personality forever grated on the suave Max's nerves, yet he stayed working with her. Rennie was another matter. I first met him when I arrested him five years ago for smuggling in the Hampshire colony in the gutter districts. I saw a cleverness and a sensitivity not even Rennie knew he possessed. He could find anyone or anything, and he had the daring to pull it off. Somehow Sadie kept all my people in line. The surround's diagonal doors revealed a hundred finger locks as they slid open, and in their protective silcoplast transparency moved toward the outer doors as they meshed back together. We soon rolled onto the port's inner runways. I yawned and tried to stop jiggling my leg, but Rap's death nodded me like an incurable disease infecting my thoughts. I looked across the linear surface to the smooth hotel facade, basking in a dim sunlight similar to Arctic bases on Earth. Patno was waiting somewhere inside the adjacent tower for an immediate departure via surface tracer, and perhaps now he had additional information. I carried my containment bag down the ramp corridor and into the crowded terminal. My gray-haired, slightly overweight friend spoke with several of his red-uniformed security troopers. Patnod never wore an official uniform. His blue suko fit his rounded body, and the gold snaps were always unbuttoned. The white neckliner bulged out of the suko. I scanned the terminal and checked the communication windows along the wall. I wanted Sadie to see what she had on Jason Rapp. Patnod broke away from his men, 
Hey, Harry, I'm glad you're here. Well, John, why haven't you solved the rap murder? I remained deadpan, throwing off his concentration. Solved it? I don't even have the Rover rental reports yet, and Kranz is being difficult. Kranz is a pain. What about rap? I asked as we headed for the containment release and the rest of my bags. Ah, spent two years in the detention wheel when he was 19, and made his initial contacts with the Devon group. I stopped and faced him. John, I spent my career chasing Devon people. Frankly, they're too powerful, and I don't want to waste my time. Rap's been married four times. A real ladies' man. I started walking again. John, you're not listening. I am. I am. Rap's a gambler. He learned his trade in the detention wheel under the wing of those Devon people. He has a murder charge against him, but the Devon lawyers got him off because he worked in the Primo, a good place to pick up women. Yeah, a real nice place, the Primo. I stepped onto the mover and set my containment on the black bubbled surface. The Primo. Heartland of vulgarity and heathens. I miss it. Pat Nope smiled. We should have rover reports before we board the tracer, Harry. My men can bring your containments to the Dillon. That's fine. I need to get a window to call Sadie. How's Gwen? Oh, she's with the kids and the grandkids. I can't believe your grandfather makes me feel old. The mover dipped down toward the containment release. This rap thing has a distinct turquoise odor to it. Whatever happened over there on IP-5 must have been big. Well, that investigation is not my concern right now. The mover leveled, and I stepped onto the surface near the containment release. The clear transport tubes were empty, and I headed toward the window kiosk. Where are you going, Harry? We need to get to the tracer hangar. I've told you, I'm calling Sadie. Okay. Patno whipped out his zip and shouted out more orders about getting my containers to the Dillon. I sat in front of the window and plugged in my zip. As containment shot through the clear overhead tubes and more passengers gathered around the deposit bins, my zip connected to my Orbitus office. Sadie smiled when she saw me. Well, I see the shuttle is uh, made it in one piece, Harry, and I still have a job. I grinned. Oh? I had an extensive report on rap. I was about to memo this into your zip. He was a Devon man. Does the word scoundrel come to mind? She asked. It does, Sadie. I'm trying to figure out how Rap came into this information about the production problems at the Turcotte Industrial Plant Number 5. Well, I can have Rennie track that down. I nodded and looked into her green eyes. I think he's in the transaction zone. Well, not surprising. Listen, I have to leave on a tracer with Patno. We should be at the murder site in about a half an hour. Who are we working for on this one, Harry? She asked. Pure curiosity at this point. I want to know why a guy who was supposed to meet me with information is now dead. The main focus is this Ed Stanton thing, which I guess will put me on the Turcotte payroll. Patno took a seat behind the petition and activated the window. Harry, Max and Jody are wrapping up the Norris case. Can they reach you by zip later tonight? Of course. I don't know if I'll have window access, but yes, have them call. I should have a better idea of what my status is here and whether Ed Stanton wants me looking into any of this. Very well. You have a nice little trip into that dust. Just what I needed, I said, trying to hear who Patino was talking to on the other window. Journey across the dust of Mars. Thanks, Sadie. I unclipped my zip and stood. Patino spoke to a man wearing a smooth green suko and a Livingston Gate identification badge. 
The man explained something about rover rentals. I walked around the panel, and Patino raised his finger as he spoke. Yes, I understand, Mr. Forrest. I had the list in my zip. What about the times of rental? Yep. And the droid payment? Asked Patino. Yep. Can I call your people about any questions I have concerning these individuals? Yep. Would they be on the security windows? What windows? We have privacy rights involved here. Well, thanks a lot, said Patino. Yep. He's a wealth of information. Patino stood and tucked his zip into his suko. I'm sick and tired of hearing about privacy rights. We have a dead man in the desert. Privacy rights end when people get murdered, I said. Easier said than done. Listen, I have a memo from Stanton. I raised my brows and tilted my head. Lockheed is definitely missing. The IP plant manager. We headed toward the containment deposit bins. One of my containers sat cockeyed in the transparency. I wonder where Lockheed is. Three of Patnode's men appeared by the mover and headed toward the bins. You have a manifest number? I punched in my zip. 357. Gentlemen, MN. 357. Mr. Cobb is listed in the Hotel Dillon down in the dome. Yes, sir, said one of the young men. Come on, Harry, said Patno, picking up the pace toward the security elevator across the tubes. Let's get up to the hangar and then out to the murder site. I was surprised that the tracer flight was so rough. Fifteen years ago, I was aboard a crashed tracer flight maybe 600 kilometers away. One man was killed and the rescue tracers didn't arrive for six hours. This present ill-conceived flight into the dust storm, now covering the Livingston Dome, was worse. Two items Patno found on separate rover rental lists diverted my attention from the storm. A Turcot employee named Jim Oakley drove his rover through LG-42 and onto the connector road to the Turcotte Industrial Plant that was managed by Joe Lockheed. I thought we should check out Oakley's story, and Patnode agreed. Patnode's list showed a Samantha Evans rented a rover and departed through the same Livingston gate as Oakley. She had an attendant procure a rover at 10.16 a.m., nearly 45 minutes after Oakley headed toward IP-5. The name Samantha Evans invoked memories of a possible bureau investigation or perhaps a long-ago security operation. That name sounds familiar, I told Patno. He inputted both names into his zip for background checks. Old girlfriend? I half grinned as the pilot began a vertical descent. He looked back at Patno. Inspector, we're docking at the portable dome set up by Lieutenant Kranz and his men. We won't be affected by the storm. By God's grace, we're here at all, I said. The pilot nodded slowly. All of Patnote's five security men had relief in their eyes. John, the name Samantha Evans relates to some case I wasn't directly involved in. Could be five, maybe six years ago. I remember reading the report. Something about a disappearance. Might have been on Earth. I don't know. You always remember every useless fact in every case you ever heard of. Patnote stroked his chin. Unless the Turcots invited Evans, but why would she travel out to an industrial plant? Another thing on our list of questions for Desmond Turcott. The tracer magically locked into the top of the portable dome. I was glad we were on the ground, even though the sand grains pelted the tracer's outer shell. Two of Patnode's men remotely slid the hatch, and Kranz's grating voice shot through the ladder tunnel. 
I looked at Patno and shook my head. Well, he's not that bad. The man likes to give out orders, because he sure as hell didn't like to follow orders when he was with the Bureau. People grow into their jobs, Harry. Patno and I stood together as one of Kranz's men popped his head through the floor opening. I trust you gentlemen enjoyed the ride. Ride, yes, enjoy, no, I said. Oh, you must be Harry Cobb. The lieutenant requests you get clearance from Security Chief Burkhart before entering the dome. Well, what kind of malarkey is that? Lieutenant's orders, sir. Ah, okay, maybe some people don't grow in their jobs, said Patno. He walked up to the opening and motioned the man back. Then he positioned himself on the top of the stairs and maneuvered himself in a surprisingly agile manner into the tiny dome. I crossed my arms and tried to remember more about Samantha Evans, but every time I tried to recount those days, memories of the arrogant Kranz ran rampant. I specifically recalled an incident on a lunar base where I directly told Kranz to search an abandoned warehouse, and he brought his men in slowly, just to upset me. I put him on report, although I couldn't prove three contraband runners escaped through one of the basement locks. I blamed Kranz. The runner's escape didn't annoy me half as much as Kranz's obstreperous defiance. Patno stuck his head up. You may enter the royal castle now. What did you do, bribe him? I asked, and I walked toward the ladder. Let's just say I know certain things about the good lieutenant, said Patno. Patno had a twinkle in his blue eyes. Come on, before they put the body in the containment bin. A cocky smile broke across my face. Oh, was the dear boy being naughty? Ah, you might say that, said Patno from below. Tell me more. I said and climbed onto the ladder. Well, that wouldn't be a secret, Harry. I moved my hands over the abrasive rungs as the air cooled and the sand hit the thinner dome walls. Hebon towers shined white blocks of light across a rusty, sand-laden, half-buried rover. The bubble top was pierced open as if someone had cut through the silcoplast with a thin blade, and the tire treads were mostly buried in the sand. Red glowing coils from Kranz's field heaters pushed a semblance of warmth into the dome, but the air was still cold enough to see your breath. An air purifier hummed behind Rapp's rover near the locks connecting Kranz's security tracer. Three security men with velvet blue outer coats hovered around a dark containment bin. Kranz, in a maroon real ball cap and the Bureau's red military fatigues, sat on scaffolding above the rover. When he saw me, he smiled. Commander Cobb, so we meet again. You're out of uniform, Kranz. You're lucky I let you in here. I looked over at Patino by the rover. He rolled his eyes and then peered inside. Oh, I don't think luck had much to do with it. Kranz thought about that for a while and then yelled at the men near the containment bin. Get the body out. Wait, wait, said Patino. Harry, take a look at this. I glanced at Kranz, huffing under his breath, and then I studied the melted silcoplast on Rapp's rover. Only a pinpoint pulsar would so cleanly slice the silcoplast. When I rounded the bend, I saw Jason Rapp's contorted face. It looks like he was gasping for air. Dead is dead, Cobb, said Kranz. I didn't acknowledge him, but instead looked at the dried blood on Rapp's blue fatigues. His head was dipped on his shoulder and his once neat brown hair was matted on his head. Do we have any pulsar fire angles or intensity? The preliminary investigation is complete, compadre. Let's put him in the bin and get the hell back to Livingston. 
Well, where's Stanton? I asked. Who cares? replied Krantz. Get the body out. No, wait. What's the damn rush? Now I stared at Krantz. We just got here. Well, we're all hungry and tired. We've been out here for three hours. Any other pinpoint murders around Livingston recently? Save your babbling for the courtroom, Cobb. Nobody hired you anyways. Oh, Harry's here on my authority, said Patnall. Then he stepped back from the rover opening. Yeah, as a matter of fact, Harry, at the end of June, one of the tram operators between the domes, a guy named Burroughs. We can look into it when we get back. We'll check the pulse of frequencies. Yeah, you do that, said Kranz, jumping down from the scaffolding. Time to fold up tent. You saw the body. He's dead. What do you say, Inspector? Patno winked, and I nodded. I would suggest that you get in your tracer, Lieutenant, and munch on some food provisions. Kranz crunched his teeth and motioned his men back through the little dome's bottom lock. I watched him disappear inside the other tracer, and then I peered into Patno's crisp blue eyes. If I were a man of revenge, I'd send that son of a bitch on permanent patrol in the transaction zone. <laughs> He'd be right at home there, Harry, said Patno, pulling out his zip. As I stared at Rapp's smooth hands, Patno called his office back in Livingston. I tried to piece Rapp's disjointed life together with the limited information that Sadie and Patnote had given me. Lockheed was missing, but until I could place him on this connector road, around quarter of two this afternoon, I discounted him as being involved in the murder. It was more of a coincidence. Rapp had ventured to the facility with the knowledge of that plant's problems and cover-up. How he came into such information might prove critical as to why he was killed. I had the manufacturer of that pinpoint to kill Burroughs, said Patno. A facility in a commerce colony midway between Earth and us, manufactured in 2134 and sold to a man named Caldwell. Residents in numerous places. Well, who the hell is Caldwell? I asked. One of my investigators, Tom Darty, says not many people went out Livingston's south gates with a storm brewing. He's concerned about this guy Oakley and and who did arrive at IP-5 around quarter past twelve. And according to the foreman, Orby, he left a half an hour later on the IP connector road. Same road as Rap, but Oakley was on the same road as Rap? Well, so was Lockheed, my friend. He left from a different IP lock. Orby was talking with Tommy Doherty when Desmond Turcott himself cut off the conversation. Well, Orby's testimony is critical. We need legal action on this. I know means breaking the Turcot hold on the court magistrates. I told Patno I still had connections in the Bureau and would use them against the Turcots if necessary to procure Orby's testimony. I scanned the rocks and sand around the rover as the storm pummeled the portable dome. Has anyone surveyed the sand out here? We haven't even read Kranz's report. I'd like to see the soil samples and compare the magnetic alignment to both Lockheed and Oakley's rovers. Wherever the hell those rovers are now, said Patno, motioning to one of his men. He sent the kid into the lock to get Kranz's report. And Samantha Evans. Darty has her vehicle impounded, said Patno. Really? Patno turned toward the lock as his man returned into the dome. Well, what's the problem? He has the report in his zip and he's transmitted a copy to the security port. I pressed my lips together and felt the frustration moaning. Patnote held my arm briefly as I left the rover and marched past the kid into the connector locks. Cran sat gnawing on ship's provisions in the command recliner, and his feet were propped up on the forward console. 
He laughed when he saw me and threw a palm-sized disc in my direction. You're such a pain in the ass, Cobb. I bent over and held the disc in my hand. As much as I wanted to knock my fist into his jaw, I moved into the lock. I could hear him mutter something back in the tracer. I gave the disc to Patino, and we studied the reading on one of the enlarged security zips. Most everything was in order, which annoyed me, but no soil samples were taken. We filled a few containers, and I gazed back toward Kranz's lock. Let's get out of here, John. Well, what about Kranz? I shook my head. Let's go. Chapter 4 The meal at the Excelsior erased the emotional onslaught of the day's investigation. I sat with Patno and a few of his officers at a huge round table next to a six-foot square zip window. Gwen Patno, her white hair cut short, stood in their habitat with Patno's daughter, son-in-law, and three young grandchildren. They darted around like errant meteorites across the room. I lifted a second stein of amber chill, a high-potency beer from a well-known Luna company. And John, of course, watches the children. Gwen laughed. Just like when the kids were growing up. He arrives home and he's the hero. Well, you wouldn't catch me hanging around the house. I'd rather be under pulsifier in the transaction zone. Pat No maneuvered a white silcoplast fork through the large ripe strawberries and scooped up a syrup-covered chunk of smooth yellow cheesecake. It's safer. What about you, Harry? Asked Gwen. You stayed devoted to your career and never married. Sometimes fate has a life of its own, I said, wondering if I was too profound. I do have lots of nieces and nephews. Here on Mars? No, on Earth. My family is mostly on Earth, in Los Angeles and Northern California. John and I had a wonderful trip down the California coast five years ago. Patno gulped his jaffron from a magenta mug. Try nine years ago, Gwenny. Well, time flies, she said. A red memo flashed in my window's lower right corner. Ah, we have a memo, said Patno. I'll be back in less than an hour, sweetheart. I've heard that one before, said Gwen as one of the kids jumped into her lap. Goodbye, Granddad, said the little girl. Goodbye, Jenny. Goodbye, Matt. Goodbye, Karen. The window closed to a small dot and quickly reopened to a playback of Doherty and his thin blue fatigues. A dusty rover was parked in a security lab. The lower digit clock noted the report was made just ten minutes ago. John, Samantha Evans' rover is behind me. A couple of things. The rover's dust aligns magnetically with the particles you brought back. Well, thank you, Harry. I shrugged my shoulders as Doherty's memo continued. The rover was rented at 1016 this morning by a woman. Five foot seven, blonde hair, and blue eyes. I have conflicting reports here. Her credit listing puts her on the Banfield Lunar Colony in a small habitat. According to the calls I placed to neighbors, Samantha Evans is away all the time. The habitat was purchased six years ago. I have an additional report from Earth, from Baltimore. Well, that was it, I said. A pinpoint attack, and the woman disappeared. I'm sure it was Samantha Evans. It was a pinpoint attack, and the woman disappeared said Darty. Patno smiled. Some rumors suggest that she faked the pinpoint attack. More than likely, I think she just disappeared. This woman also had a criminal background, including arrests for fraud and grand larceny. That's it from here, John. We'll go over the rover again tomorrow. Oh, 
I called Oakley's habitat like you wanted. His wife reports he's not around. Never around. She already had called the local security port. I'll talk to you. Well, well, said Pat No. Our little Miss Evans has a past. I pinched my chin. Darty's report left me unnerved. A rap was from Baltimore, John. Oh, boy, said Patno. He finished the Jaffron and looked across the restaurant. Jaffron will keep you awake. Well, I may need to stay awake. I turned as Desmond Turcott, his black hair brushed back perfectly, marched ahead of his shorter brother into the restaurant. Even at this late hour, Desmond wore a red suko with gold buttons and a gold neckliner. His dark eyes focused on Patno. I see the good inspector has ample free time on his schedule. Patno stood, but I remained seated. I still remembered Desmond as a smart-mouthed little brat running around Jared Turcott's office 25 years ago. Patno quickly shook Desmond's hand. Why are you here, Desmond? <laughs> Why am I here? He asked, and he smiled at his brother. Brandon, he hasn't used his brilliant powers of deduction to understand my concerns. Seems as though you have ample problems, I said loudly. Desmond quickly turned toward me. He raised his left brow and nearly smiled. Oh, I thought you were in retirement. Technically, I'm on your payroll. Brandon's brow creased, but Desmond was unfettered. A call from Ed Stanton does not warrant any association with the Turcotte name. Only I will deem who is and who is not on the Turcotte payroll. I stood and walked by Patno. Desmond didn't flinch when I moved within centimeters of his taller frame. Does your father have a working knowledge of the operations of Industrial Plant 5? Father has more of an intrasolar system role nowadays, said Desmond, his voice shifting from confrontational to charming. My father always admired your bureau record, Harry. Please consider yourself and always a friend of the Turcotts. That's very reassuring, but where is your father now? Oh, he's in the Caribbean, said Brandon. Oh, I said, raising my brows, but I soon found Desmond's arm around my shoulder. He walked me a few feet away from the table. Jared is fully aware of certain production problems in IP5. Things have been changed and are not important right now. I looked at his hand still on my arm, and then he released his grip. You think Jason Rapp thought those problems were important? Well, Rapp is dead and on my property. My chief engineer in IP5 is missing. I want you to find the truth. I stared at him for a few moments. Do you? Why, yes, of course. Desmond, I don't trust you. He tilted his chin up and laughed. <laughs> That's why I always liked you, Harry. You speak your mind and you're so cynical. I can assure you that I want my IP5 engineer cleared. Oh, where is he? Finding him is a priority. Well, my guess, he's hiding out with or without your help in one of your facilities, IP5 or IP7. Then can I credit you a 30-droit retainer? No, I want a 50-droit with expenses, I said, and I tried to second-guess how much he really wanted me in the investigation. Very well. No mind. And tell me what was going on at IP5. Well, I shan't go that far. Ed wanted you to look at the overall picture. But with specifics, we're talking about trade secrets, Harry. Desmond, you risk not having my services. 
No mind. I follow up on this under certain conditions. Number one, you let me have full run of your facilities here on Mars. I want to speak with Ed Stanton and all personnel, and I want Pat No with me. Agreed. And don't be holding back anything or I'm off the case. Desmond produced his overbearing fixed smile. Well, I wouldn't think of putting the investigation in jeopardy. Oh, yes, you would. I walked by him, and he uttered something about not bothering to call his father. Brandon was enjoying a stein of amber chill and talking with Patno about a real ball game he went to last night. Patno looked at Desmond, now at the bar, and then at me. Well, what's the good news, Harry? Well, I'm officially working for the Turcots on this. Really? Well, great, said Brandon, shaking my hand with a stronger grip than Desmond's feeble grasp. My father always speaks well of you. I thought about asking Brandon about IP5, but figured Desmond had already browbeaten him into silence. Well, I look forward to your father's return. Oh, Desmond gave him and my mother an extensive trip. I bet he did. I was beginning to question whether Jared knew about IP5, or if he did, maybe he was letting Desmond handle it. Brandon, did you know Jason Rapp? Brandon shook his head and sipped some more of the chill. He made eye contact, and I believed he was telling the truth. No, but I'm not sure about Joe Lockheed. Well, neither am I. I was more convinced as Desmond canted back across the restaurant, whatever improprieties occurring at IP5, as illegal or nefarious as they might seem, were far less important than Rapp's possible blackmail of Lockheed. What kind of a man was Joe Lockheed? Joe Lockheed, said Desmond upon his return, was a no-nonsense man who did his job well. No-nonsense meaning he wouldn't take any guff from anybody. No, the man did his job. Well, he lived his job, said Brandon. My brother is correct. You could always rely on Joe. I sat down at the table again and thought about the cocky rap. Listen, Desmond. I know you can't tell me the inner workings of your plant, but what if Rapp already knew what you knew? Blackmail, the oldest game around. He gazed at a taller woman with long brown hair back at the entrance. Well, almost the oldest game. That's a theory, Harry, except Joe did nothing to be blackmailed about. No, he didn't. I will overlook that remark. We have to be going, he said, looking at the brunette again. Follow me, Brandon. Nice chatting with you, Mr. Cobb, said Brandon, leaving the stein on the table. Everyone exchanged handshakes, and Desmond and Brandon parted company. Desmond rendezvoused up ahead and slipped his arm around a woman by the bar. I turned to Patno. I think Ed wanted answers that Desmond wouldn't give him. But I'll tell you, I want to know what the hell's going on out there at IP5. Well, so do I, but he's not going to tell us. Damn Turcot power. It might take months to get the trade boards to look into it, and Desmond would block it all the way. Hence the arrogance. I'm contacting Jared Turcot. Oh, good luck. I'm sure Desmond somehow controls access to his father, too. Very clever how he moved Jared into space. Jared handles the expanding Turcot holdings, giving Desmond full reign here. My mind drifted, and I daydreamed about being with Ariana tomorrow evening. Old memories of the towering gondola falls, cascading off the sunlit jagged mountain cliffs, materialized inside my head. 
Ten years ago, I had flown in from an investigation on Earth and met her at a Mars social gathering. From the first moment, we were attracted to each other. We stayed out all night, and she booked the time in the dome. I was tired from months of continuous work, and Barsoom's mystery was just what we both needed. I let my mind wander back up to the mountaintop chateau overlooking the rope bridge that bowed over the canyon. Ariana wore only a velvet-red suko as we walked up the stones toward the chateau. My thoughts were shattered when Patno touched my wrist. Oh, sorry, John, I said with a smile. I'm having dinner tomorrow night with Ariana. Patno raised his bushy brows. Well, well, I can see the old fires have been rekindled. I'm afraid you might be right. She's a powerful woman now that Cervantes is dead. Amalgamated Cerides is no small potato. Well, before the evening fireworks, kindly meet me in my office tomorrow morning. I want to get this case over el pronto. I don't like bucking up against the Turcots, and I want the murderer in custody and then go back to my run-of-the-mill cases. What time? I asked. Meet me at 8.30, Harry. Maybe we can get out to IP5 and interview Warby. Tomorrow? Don't worry, I'll have you back at Livingston before evening. I just hope you know what you're doing with Ariana, Harry. So do I, John. So do I. Chapter 5 Jason Rapp's corpse, aligned on a forensic scanning table inside the Hasbrook Dome, was eerie on Patnode's office window. Without touching a pulsive beam to his body, technicians mapped Rapp's internal organs. For the past two hours, tissues, organs, and systems were magnified and extrapolated with graphs and data. Rapp's liver was not in the best of shape, but his heart was strong and not touched by the pinpoint beam. His lungs were punctured and sliced in several areas as the killer dragged the beam downward. The damage was not enough to kill him, but made him gurgle for breath and drown in his own blood. Insignificant abrasions, probably occurring when the beam retracted, appeared on his shoulder and arm. I winced as the forensics lecture continued on the window. John, I don't think we need to know that the man had a bout with the flu when he was 14. Don't you like details, Harry? asked Patnall. I like details just fine when they have relevance. I walked over to the water containment and poured myself a cup of cool water. You want some Jaffron? asked Patnall. As a matter of fact, maybe I do. I drank the water anyways as Patno moved into the main office. Ten minutes ago, he had procured a playback of the rental manager. Under the threat of a magistrate order, the guy described a tall blonde with blue eyes. It was on the security scan. He wasn't sure about a ten-year-old image of Samantha Evans that Patno had found on an old media disc. I called out when Patno neared the food alcohol. You know, this case is starting to get on my nerves. Ah, I never would have guessed. Don't we have any more recent images of Evans? Harry, she's been missing for six years. Somebody's pretending to be her. Well, you don't know that. I took another swig of water and let it stay in my mouth, chilling my teeth until it warmed to body temperature. I walked back to the window, grabbed the controller, and reversed the playback. From the doorway, Patnode held two steaming cups of Jaffron. I turned toward the array of buttons under the little screen, monitoring the forward window. This thing is really annoying me. What's the matter? Didn't you sleep last night? As a matter of fact, I said, taking the Jaffron mug, I sniffed the mint-flavored batch. For the record, I didn't sleep at all. Patno smiled, 
raised his brows and took the controller from my hand. Where do you want to be on the playback? I brought the warm mixture to my lips and allowed the smoothing blend to trickle down my throat. The effect, as usual, was instant, easing my sinus headache and sharpening my alertness. I want to see the angle of fire and speculation on the shooter. 43-16, ballistic section, go. 43-16, how am I supposed to know that? I asked and took in some more Jaffron. Go, you make it sound like you're asking your dog to fetch the evening paper. The disc stopped at a depiction of the rover, a simulated killer in a silver terrain suit, and red beams in a series of frames showing the exact angle of fire. Problem with these simulations, John, is they look so real. Well, we've come a long way, said Patno, taking his seat. Yeah, but we run the risk of believing the damn thing because it seems so real. Look at that window. It's like we're there yesterday afternoon. Power of the pinpoint was 65 pulses per second. Okay, I'll buy that. Well, I'm glad, said Patno, sampling the Jaffron. He smacked his lips. You're in a bad mood, Harry. I didn't argue the point as I approached the window. You want to know what really bothers me? Okay, Harry, what really bothers you? Angle of fire was only slightly higher than horizontal to wrap. Well, why does that bother you? He asked and seemed amused at my crotchety attitude. No, that isn't what bothers me. The beam was 1.89 centimeters, but they automatically tell us the killer was 1.82 meters. That's ludicrous. Why, the angle at somebody of that height would... Did anyone bother to tell that smart-ass machine that we're in the middle of a dust storm? You saw the sands. They shifted every few minutes with the fury. Good point. Which means the height and angle are useless. What about this pinpoint? Pat Note set his Jaffron mug on the table. I gulped my own Jaffron as he called somebody in his office on his zip and requested an update on the manufacturer and the identity of the pulser. I realized that I had rounded off the pulse and the size of the beam when he repeated the exact measurements down to the last decimal point, the critical pieces of data for tracing a weapon. Yes, I understand. What happened? They'll have it on the window momentarily. I sat down and rubbed my eyes. It's not the case that gets you all fired up, Harry. What do you mean? I asked and I closed my eyes as I pinched the bridge of my nose. You're scared to death you might get involved with Ariana again. My eyes opened slowly like the transition surrounds on a land dome, and Pat Note's wide smile came into focus. Oh, you think you know me so well. well? Yeah, well, I do. Sure, I'm asking myself why I bothered to cross the gaming floor. I think you have to let it play out, my friend. Well, you may be right. I squinted and studied the pinpoint data now filling the window's lower corner in bright red letters. Manufacture, Elton Ballistics. Commerce Plant Alpha, date of manufacture 11-22-37, shipped to Best Sales Earth Warehouse, Baltimore, Maryland, USA 529-39. Purchase information, J.W. Caldwell, 16 Brubaker Drive, Norton, Maryland, permit number 678-906. Born 428-2092, died 10-11-2139. Caldwell, what the hell's going on here? I finished my Jaffron, plugged in my own zip into the side window, and signaled Max. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, John? You mean that Burroughs was from Baltimore and so was Samantha Evans, and he was killed by Caldwell's pinpoint? 
That's exactly what I'm thinking. Max was dressed in a textured bane of fabric blue suko with a ruffled neckliner and his dark hair trimmed symmetrically down to the centimeter. I had never seen his appearance compromised. His voice reflected his novel education background. Harry, I was just about to memo your zip. How are you this morning? Lousy, how are you? I'm fine and eager to help you on this case involving Jason Rapp. We are on the Rapp case, right? I guess we are. Who knows at this point? Jody, her brown hair cut short, was dressed in a one-piece olive jumper. Jody! What? She answered in her bionic monotone. How are you? Is that a rhetorical question? She asked. No, it's just a greeting. Oh, yes. Hello. And hello, Inspector Patno. Max leaned to the left. I, uh, do apologize, Inspector, for the oversight. Uh, it's good to see you again. Well, it's good to see you, Max. Patino pointed at his mug, but the Jaffron had sufficiently awakened me. I shook my head. Samantha Evans' body was never found, yet she's here on Mars, in a rental rover garage, using current credit. May I? Asked Jody, stepping in front of Max. Men is not something I expect said Max as he motioned her to the center scanner. Background check indicates Samantha Evans was J.E. Caldwell's lover, and Caldwell's pulser killed Burroughs. Max, Caldwell's pulser killed Jason Rapp, I exclaimed. Well, that's interesting. Caldwell was at his main residence in Platinum City when Evans disappeared on a trip to Platinum City. A report was filed 10-7-39 by local security. And she disappeared just before Caldwell's death. I looked at Patino. He leaned toward the window. But Caldwell's weapon killed Burroughs long after he was dead. I'm telling you, Evans' disappearance was no accident. Jody, did Evans really pay for the rover rental? An attendant rented it with her approval on her credit and brought the rover to the rim around Livingston. Or was there a genetic or palm scan? You know as well as I that merchants are just interested in payment. I nodded and closed my eyes briefly. What else? Caldwell died of a heart malfunction at his home in Platinum City, October 11th, 2139. I'm currently awaiting forensic and biographical data on Mr. Caldwell. Additional information about the Caldwell-Evans relationship would prove useful. I'm having problems checking Evans's credit. Well, call Rennie. He knows people who can find out that information. Of course. Rennie's associates are varied. Well put. Listen, John and I are checking out Lockheed and Oakley. Both men are still missing. We're traveling out to IP5 this morning. But right now, I'm considering Samantha Evans as the third suspect. Yes. Yes, that's a given. You mean the Turcots are actually cooperating? Cooperating? Desmond is paying me a retainer and expenses. Well, that's unheard of. Unheard of! Mr. Turcock has sufficient funds, said Jody without moving a facial muscle. Forgive my friend, Inspector. She takes things very literally, which sometimes works to my advantage. Max, let's make it a point to check in this evening. Patino smiled, but it did not look at me. Early this evening, I'll call you. Understood. 
Good luck at IP5, Harry. Inspector? Nice chatting with you both. Thanks for your help, Jody, I said, and waited her reply. That is within my job description. Max rolled his eyes. Come with me, Jody. We have work to do. Good day, gentlemen. The window closed, and I pointed at Patno. You knew I was thinking about my dinner with Ariana when I said I was calling Max. Oh, me? I tried not to grin as I stood. Well? Well what? Are we going to IP5? Wow, that's within my job description. Cobb checks in with two of his people, the sophisticated Max and the bionic Jody. A woman named Samantha Evans was a lover of Caldwell, the owner of the gun. She was considered dead and the body never found, yet her info is on the tracer, rented her on Mars. Desmond Turcotte, the oldest of the Turcotte brothers, is paying Cobb to investigate this murder near his plant, IP-5. But the most important information for Harry Cobb is personal. His old flame, Ariana Cervantes, is on Mars, and Cobb cannot resist contacting her. In the meantime, he starts his investigation with Patno. He's baffled by the angle of entry by the powered laser called a pinpoint pulser. Cobb and Patno both drink mega-stimulant drinks more powerful than coffee called Jaffron as he looks for the identity of the pulser. Cobb has a deep past with Ariana and knows he should stay as far away from her as possible even though now, with her father's passing, she owns amalgamated sureties and is wealthier than sin. Good luck, Harry. This is Robert P. Fitton. Perhaps I'll take the shuttle up to Phobos. See you next time for episode two of Harry Cobb and the Dust of Mars. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz.com.